please take your Bibles this morning. And if you'd like, you can turn to Luke 21. Again, it's going to be a, a somewhat topical message. The second part of our consideration, Jewish culture and sound doctrine. I wanted to get this whole thing into one message, but when I started teaching on the name of Christ, there was still a great deal last week on the name of Christ that I wish I could have hit that I did not. I feel as though in many ways, actually, I did the sermon a little bit of of a disservice. And again this week, um, I'm not going to be able to cover as much as I would like. The topic that I'm going to cover today is really better for, we might say, a seminar um, type of setting than it is really for a sermon setting. Multiple sermons would do the topic better justice, but I don't want to get bogged down on this. But particularly today, I'm going to cover something that I feel like we need in our particular neck of the woods. As we considered last week the name of Christ, that the name of Christ is not just invoking His title, but is rather recognizing all that He is, His person, His character, His work, and His word. That to call on the name of the Lord to be saved is to acknowledge Christ to be who He is. That to pray in the name of Christ is to acknowledge Christ in our prayers. And this week, we're going to cover one more theological issue. And it really does not have, have anything to do with, with Jewish tradition in, in the sense of truth, but it does in the sense of how we got, how, how certain traditions have gotten to where they are today. And what we are going to end up talking about today is infant baptism. Up here, we, we have, we're in a very Lutheran and Catholic area, and infant baptism is a big deal. Many of you, most likely, have been infant baptized, in, in fact, and uh, we at Legacy Baptist Church do not baptize our infants. And the question comes up as to why. And today's message, I'm going to create a few links for you. I'm going to go through a logical pro- progression. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to explain to you briefly, not in the, in the kind of precision or, or thoroughness that I would like, but it's just, you can you know, certainly take this and run with it and, and do the study yourself if you'd like more information. I'm going to tell you where the concept of infant baptism came from, the theological interpretation that brought about the, the necessity for it, the reason why it is a baptism, the reason why we don't believe it's necessary, and why we don't teach it. I'm going to, to, to take you through the whole process this morning and, and introduce it to you, and just introduce it to you. It's going to be somewhat ac- academic, a little more mind-intensive. It's going to have more to do with biblical interpretation and theology than it is going to do with the Bible itself and, and some of the Bible's teachings. And I hope you know that, that the concept of theology is not always the same as, as doctrine. Uh, oftentimes theology is what people have taken. They've taken doctrine and they've extended it well beyond its implications or meaning. Now, as I preach this, many of the points are better explained in sermons that I've preached in the past. And particularly, if you're interested in more, more of this, understanding a little bit more, I would encourage you to uh, go to the sermons that I preached in Ezekiel to understand why we are what we would call dispensationalists and then to go to Galatians to understand why it is we do not believe in, in, a, in a more thorough way, we do not believe some of these traditions that have found their way into various church traditions. And I hope that this, this sermon uh, does not become a threat to anyone in here, but it's, uh, my intention is not to attack but to inform. 
to give you reasons why we do what we do, why we don't do what we do. See, because everything comes from somewhere. Thoughts have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And where we are today as a church, whether we're talking about Legacy Baptist Church or whether we're talking about the Lutheran churches in town or the Catholic church in town or the non-denominational churches that are in town, each group is where they are based upon the consequences of ideas, ideologies, and interpretations. One more important thing before we move on. We must remember that Legacy Baptist Church does not have a corner on the Christian market. Everything we do and everything that we don't do, we do or don't do because we believe that in doing so we are best reflecting the teachings of the Word of God and we are best positioning the individual believer for spiritual success in this world. However, we never claim nor even seek to imply that the way we do things is the way it must be done. And that just because somebody else does something that is different or does something that we do not believe is rooted in the Bible that it's inherently wrong for them to do. We have gathered a group of people here that are in many ways biblicists. We want to have reasons and if it's not in the Bible then we say we don't need it. But just because we don't need it doesn't necessarily mean we don't that that we have to reject it. Or that we have to reject everybody that does it as being unbiblical. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get to the end. Now, our reference verse this morning, and we really just have a reference verse, then we'll reference more verses toward the end. In between will be a lot of teaching. Our reference verse is Luke 2.21, where we read this. When eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angels before he was conceived in the womb. Now, the circumcision of a child on the eighth day was a condition of the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant given to Abraham uh, in regard to specifically his son, Isaac. It was established in Genesis 17, after which Abraham and his entire household, every male, was circumcised, including Abraham's son Ishmael, who was 13 at the time. Now, we understand from Genesis 21 that Isaac was actually, as far as the Bible tells us, the first person to be circumcised on the actual eighth day, on the day that God prescribed a child to be a a male child to be circumcised according to God's covenant. And this was to usher Abraham and his posterity into the physical promises of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, the land seed and the blessing. Now, as we continue through the Old Testament, we find that this, this expectation, circumcision, was folded into the Mosaic covenant. It was reiterated in the Mosaic covenant so that under the law... Every child in Israel was required to be circumcised on the eighth day in order to receive the blessings that were given to the nation of Israel, the physical promises, the blessings and the cursings. When the child was circumcised on the eighth day, he was ushered into the covenant national promises of the covenant national people of Israel. God says if a child is not circumcised, then he he is to be cast out of the nation. He, He has no part in the nation in the blessings and the cursings. If a person were to come into the nation to proselytize in, he was to be circumcised. As we consider this concept of circumcision, in the New Testament, in Christ, when Jesus Christ comes, he preaches, uh, he dies on the cross, he raises again, circumcision actually became one of the first big controversies 
in the church. And this is where if you listen to my Galatians sermons, you'll get a little more context because in Galatians it's handled quite thoroughly. And the first point I would like us to consider as we build an argument and we seek to understand the idea of infant baptism, remember that's where we're going this morning, is this first point, circumcision is not a part of salvation. Circumcision is not a part of salvation. Now in the New Testament, following Jesus' death, as I mentioned, circumcision became one of the first major controversies. As the church was initially made up of believers that were almost exclusively Jews, right? The day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved and they were all there for Passover. I mean, they were all there for Pentecost, excuse me. They were all there for the feast. They were Jews. And so the, the church was initially made up of almost exclusively Jews. And they felt it imperative as a part of entering into the church that all believers, even in the Gentile world, as the gospel spread through Philip to the Samaritans and then through Cornelius, uh, Peter's ministry with Cornelius and then the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip and, and then as Paul went out and did his ministry and he, he, he spread and he planted churches, there were many Jewish believers teaching that the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to have a part in Christ. And we read this in Acts, uh, the book of Acts chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. And certain men which came down from Judea, taught the brethren, and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others, uh, other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. I love this. I love the description here. Paul and Barnabas, there's these men, these, these believers from Judea, they come up into these Gentile regions and they say, look, your salvation is not valid until you get circumcised. You need to be circumcised. And it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. I love that phrase. I wonder what, it, what that no small disputation must have been like. Barnabas was a, a, his name meaning son of consolation. He was a pretty gentle guy from what we understand from Scripture. He probably, and, and he was kind of oftentimes would be the spokesman for the group. He was a speaker. We know that from um, uh, another account in the book of Acts. And as we think of Barnabas, probably quite patiently dealing with these people as to the scriptures, explaining to these men that they're incorrect, that circumcision is not a requirement. You can perhaps see Paul kind of standing back with his face getting red. The veins popping in his forehead. That's kind of what, what, what I think of. Paul was a pretty passionate guy. And then the no small disputation begins. And Paul begins to tell them what for. I couldn't imagine being on the wrong side of Paul in a doctrinal argument or, or anything really. Um, so Paul and Barnabas realize that they, they don't have the rapport with the Jewish believers sufficient to settle this dispute. And they see that the problem is bigger than just these two men. These two men are being sent out from Judea, but they're being taught by somebody. And Paul and Barnabas say, we need to get to the source on this. We need to dig down to the root, and we need to pull out the root of this false doctrine from the source. So they, they go up, and they go up with some other men. We know that Timothy was one of those men. And they go up to Jerusalem to the elders to talk about this. And we continue reading in Acts 15, verses 3 through 7. The Bible says, And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Benes, 
and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and declared all things that God had done with them. But, excuse me, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so it seems as though what Paul and Barnabas did is they, they went through the region declaring the salvation of the Gentiles in a manner hoping that as they got to Jerusalem and they said, the Gentiles have received the Spirit of God and they are being saved and they are accepting the gospel, hoping that the, the leaders in the church that believed in circumcision would raise their, raise their voices and say, okay, now get them circumcised. Now get them circumcised. And they could see who it was that was being the problem and then they could challenge that problem. Continue, and the apostles and elders came together for, to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that good, a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So there's this disagreement within the church, and it was a sect of believing Pharisees. Apparently there had been a good number of Pharisees. Now, we, we read about the Pharisees, and we know that they hated Jesus. But there were a good number of the Pharisees, it appears, who were genuine, who loved the Lord, who were truly seeking Messiah. And when Messiah came, they recognized him, and they followed him. But they had this misunderstanding. They, they of course, being Pharisees, still loved the law of Moses, and that's not a bad thing. The law, Paul even told us in Romans, is spiritual and good. It was a reflection of the character of Christ. And they said, no, you have to be circumcised. They must be circumcised to be brought into the church. And, and here we find this same issue. And so the elders get together to settle this. And the scriptures tell us that Peter stands up. Now, everyone knew Paul's opinion, but Paul didn't have much sway in Jerusalem. Remember, he had been saved on the road to Damascus. He had stayed there for a while. He came to Jerusalem for a very brief time. And then he was off again. He had very, very little sway in Jerusalem over Jewish believers. Peter, on the other hand, was another story, right? Peter was one of the foremost authorities in the church. And he steps up and he begins stating what everyone knew, that God had chosen him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He's speaking of the account of Cornelius. The vision of the sheep and the blanket and the unclean animals. And God says, eat. Peter says, no, Lord, I won't eat. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, don't you dare call that unclean, which I have called clean. And then Cornelius' representatives come and say, he would like to speak with you. And Peter realizes what God was telling me is that the Gentiles can be saved just as the Jews can be saved. That I cannot call a Gentile unclean if God has called them clean. It's all in my Galatians series. I encourage you to listen to it if you have not. So Peter says here, you recall that God has used me to go to the Gentile world. And he continues in verses 8 through 10. He says, And God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts by faith, just like he purified our hearts by faith. He gave them the Holy Spirit, just like he gave us the Holy Spirit. There's no difference there. And notice then what he says. Now therefore he says, Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why do we attempt to place upon them the burden of the law when the Jews failed at that, right? The Jews failed at keeping the law. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law because the Jews failed. They showed 
that there's no man that even, even with a checklist, even with all of everything written down, even with the clearest expectations of God for them and the promise of great blessing if they would keep it, man still didn't care. Man still would not do it. Man would still rebel because the thoughts of a man's heart are evil continually. And so Christ came to fulfill the law, to, to accomplish in us what we could not accomplish in ourselves. And so Peter says, why should we put upon these Gentile believers the burdens of the law that even we as Jews could not bear? That's why Christ had to come, right? And he finishes in verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. We believe that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. We don't believe that circumcision is needed. So why should they have to be circumcised? That's not what saves a man. And this is not our point this morning, but, but the Bible is very clear about this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If one day we get to heaven and there's a contingency of believers who have been circumcised and they say, and they get in because they're circumcised and those who are not circumcised are stuck on the outside, then those that got in could say, wow, look, look at that. I figured it out. I, I found the right piece. I did. I got circumcised, therefore I'm in. And they, got, they didn't. They're out. That's works. That's works. The gospel is a gospel free from works. The gospel is this. You are a sinner. This sin separates you from a holy God who, though He loves you, He hates your sin and cannot be in fellowship with that which is sinful. This sin not only separates you from God today, but will separate you from God eternally. And all who are in this place of separation from God eternity for eternity will be in a place of conscious torment known as the lake of fire. But the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That God came down to earth in the form of a man, and His name was Jesus of Nazareth. That He lived without sin on this earth for some 33 years. He was rejected for His message of the truth of God. And as He was rejected, He was condemned to die. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was lashed. He was whipped. And the Bible says that He was bruised for our iniquities. That the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. That with His stripes, that would be the lashings on His back, we are healed. That He bore our sin in His own body. He was placed upon a cross, a cruel, cruel form of, of execution. And the Bible tells us that as Jesus hung dying on that cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made His Son Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God poured out His wrath for sin upon Jesus so that God could take Jesus' sinless righteousness and pour it out on you, clothe you in it, cover you in it. No works, no effort. There's nothing you could do, and thank God there's nothing you could do, because if we were on a sliding scale of works here, none of us would get it. Because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Praise the Lord for that. Because since it's not about us, it's about Christ. It's not about what we do. It's about what was done for us. 
when Christ purchased the gift of salvation on the cross, that gift was sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world. But Jesus didn't stay dead. The Bible tells us, three days later, He arose from the grave, proving all of His claims to be true. A dead prophet is a useless prophet. A living prophet. One who says, I can give you eternal life and watch me prove it. And he has life. He rises from the dead. Because he lives, we can be assured that we will as well. And he promised that anybody who would fully accept this gift of salvation by faith would receive it. No effort. No self-reformation. No self-righteousness. No baptism. No circumcision. Salvation is not conditioned upon what I have done or have not done. It is conditioned upon what, ha- what Christ has done for me and whether I'm willing to place my full faith and trust in that. And the moment we accept that divine truth of redemption, the Bible says we are passed from death unto life. Now these Pharisees were believers, the, the Bible tells us. They are men who had believed. But sometime after their belief, their understanding of the gospel has gotten muddled. And that's not uncommon, is it? We all know, we all know people who are believers, but that after they accepted the simple salvation by grace through faith, they got under the teaching of some guy who was smarter, who who outsmarted himself, and started adding layers of complication to the gospel. Started adding layers of expectation to the gospel. And was teaching others these layers in an attempt perhaps to add some sort of specificity or some sort of clarity or to reflect better his own experience. He adds a layer to the simplicity of the gospel. And this is what had happened here. I I, I honestly believe that these Pharisees had accepted Jesus Christ on his own terms. But then as they started thinking about it, they outsmarted themselves and they started teaching an extra layer. Circumcision. And as we consider this whole circumstance, what Peter said without question, he confirmed what Paul and Barnabas taught without question, that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Why is that so important? We'll get there. And this is where things get interesting. Our second point this morning, there is a distinction between national Israel and the church. As we seek to understand what infant baptism is about, circumcision, understanding circumcision and its, its, its role is the first important step. Second is understanding how those that believe in infant baptism see the church. There's a doctrine out there that's prevalent, becoming more prevalent, which is called replacement theology. It's also called covenant theology. Now, they're actually different systems. If you talk to the people within them, they're two different systems. But they oftentimes head toward the same end. So I'm going to use them semi-interchangeably today. I'm technically going to teach you covenant theology, not replacement theology. But um, if, you, if you know one, then you've got the basic idea of the other. And I'm going to do my best to fairly and accurately represent them this morning. It's, it's not fair for a person to get up and tell you what other people believe without them here to help clarify things. Because uh, as with anything in theology, there's a spectrum. And some people will say, well, people say we're this way, but that's not actually what we believe in. And there's all sorts of things. So I understand here, I'm getting up and I'm telling you something without giving them a chance to defend themselves. 
but I'm doing my best to put myself in their shoes and to give you what they say they believe. Effectively, the covenant theologian breaks history into two primary divisions, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. They say that the covenant of works was in effect in this world until Adam's sin. And when Adam sinned, God stopped the covenant of works whereby a man was right with God by what he did and he began a covenant of grace whereby a man was right with God uh, by grace, not by works. And they trace this covenant of works through various stages, I mean grace, through various stages to the coming of Messiah when Messiah really established the basis for that grace. They believe that all throughout this time there was only one people of God. Believing Israel, believing Gentiles. Whether you're talking Old Testament or New Testament, there's only ever been this. There's been a, a national Israel, it's a bunch of lost people. There's been unbelieving Gentiles in various nations. And then there's been believing people of God. Now, within this system, they regard the Mosaic Covenant as just being this temporary time. From its institution to the cross. And that everything that God was doing with Israel is contained with the nation of Israel was contained within that period of time. And it does not go beyond it. It didn't go before it. It doesn't go after it. And that God completely finalized his dealings with Israel on a national level at the cross. That they're done. National Israel is done at the cross. Now, the essential point to be made here is that outside of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant theologian regards no promises made to, to Israel as having been made to the nation. They regard them as having been made to only the believers within Israel. What they would call the church. They say the church has existed in Old Testament and in New Testament of this group of believing Israelites and believing Gentiles. All of the promises to Abraham were outside of the Mosaic Covenant, they say. So they only apply to the people of God, that being the church. And that as the nation of Israel was established, the nation itself didn't receive those promises, but only the subset that actually believed received those promises. They claim that that, that subset was, were the only ones that were regarded as Abraham's family. That they were the ones that would only, only be the ones to receive the promises. And if every promise, other than the physical and temporary blessings and cursings of the Mosaic Law itself, were given to the believers, then when God was finished with the Mosaic Law, when Jesus Christ came and the Mosaic Law was fulfilled, everything that na the nation of Israel had that was special is done and gone. And they're just another people now, just like any other people. They've got no future. They've got no promises. That, that they were just a vessel through whom a bunch of believers were, were carried. The believing in Israel. And now we're still just a bunch of, we're still the same people of God as in the Old Testament. There's no difference. There never was a difference. They see the unbroken line of the exact same blessings throughout the ages of grace into eternity. And let me say this quite carefully. There is elements of this which are valid. As I've presented this, elements of this are valid. There has only ever been one group of believers, and that is believers. The nation of Israel was never wholesale saved just because they were a part of the nation. Now, the scriptures teach us that there was a generation that had believed fully, the generation that came out of Egypt. They were a fully believing nation. But it's not because they were a part of Israel, it's because they all believed. 
And then since then, there always was a, only a believing remnant in Israel. But it's not all biblical. And the part that is not biblical is, is error, absolute error. And it taints everything about their system of interpretation all the way to the gospel itself. And this is what we call false doctrine. Satan knows full well that the church is not going to wholesale be duped by blatant errors. But if he can mix 10% error into 90% truth, 5% error into 95% truth, 15% error into 85% truth, this will be sufficient to lead the majority of a generation of laymen into error. And then in a couple of generations, a little bit of error becomes apostasy. And so I would caution you against the covenant theologian. Are many of them believers? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like the believing Pharisees. But they've layered and they've changed things and they've, they've ignored scriptures or they've, they've played fast and loose with interpretation. They don't interpret in a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual way. What does the Bible say then? Well, the Bible says that there indeed has only ever been one way to have a spiritual relationship with God in every generation by faith alone. Whether it's Abraham, whether it's Isaac, whether it's Jacob, whether it's the children of Israel, whether it's David, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Jeremiah, whether it's Ezekiel, whether it's Jesus Christ, whether it's Paul, whether it's Peter, salvation has always been by faith. The Bible makes that very clear. Salvation has always been by faith. Throughout each age, divine revelation has progressively increased. In each age, the standard for salvation has always been faith in the amount of revelation which God has given. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 says this, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Righteousness was imputed unto him through faith, just like righteousness is imputed unto us by faith. Now to him, the Bible says, that that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you work to receive a reward, then you have worked off a debt. You've not received grace. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Abraham, salvation by grace through faith. David, salvation by grace through faith. Imputed righteousness, not based upon works, but based upon belief. Okay, so we see this, right? From Adam all the way through, there's an unbroken line of believers. And the believers are only those who have placed their full faith and trust in salvation. Israel was not saved by works in the Old Testament. The law did not save them in the Old Testament any more than the law saves anyone in the New Testament. Circumcision did not save Abraham and his children in the Old Testament any more than circumcision saves Abraham and his children in the New Testament. That's, that's, not, that's not accurate. That salvation has always been by grace through faith. Well, then what's the controversy? What's the controversy here? Well, the covenant theologian believes that because salvation has always worked the same way, this means that every promise given to Israel was only given to the believers in Israel, not the nation itself. 
that when God was telling the nation, I will redeem you, I will save you, I will restore you, I will give you the land, I will give you the seed, I will give you the promises, I will give you the blessings, I will rule over you as king, that he was telling that to an entire nation, but he wasn't actually telling it to the entire nation. He was only telling it to the subset that would believe. The elect. Because covenant theologians are often Calvinist. That God has chosen a small group out of that big group. And as God tells the whole big group something, he's actually only talking to the small group. And the rest of them, though they don't know it, have no hope of being a part of it. Have no hope of receiving it. Likewise, because the believers in Israel are no different from believing Gentiles today or in any other generation as the people of God, every promise made to Israel was actually made to the subset of Israel, which are believers, which were part of the church, which is still the church today. So every promise that was made to Israel in the Old Testament is the churches to claim today. That's what they believe. Because they see no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're all just the believing remnant. So the believing remnant today gets every promise of the believing remnant then. And because God's promises to Israel weren't national promises, they were only promises to the believing in Israel... Every promise God made up until the cross was given to these people, which are the same as these people, the believing... Not everyone can see the slides. Well, believing Israel, which is the same as believing Gentiles, which are all the people of God, therefore they're my promises just as much as they were the promises of anyone else. Which means the land is mine. The seed is mine. The blessing is mine. And national Israel, they get nothing. They have nothing. There's nothing special for them. There's no special privileges for them. There's no promises that linger for them. That's what the covenant theologian believes. Now you can imagine this has led to heavy anti-Semitism in covenant theologian circles all throughout history. You can trace it. You can trace it through Martin Luther. You can trace it through John Calvin. You can trace it. They were ruthless toward the Jews. Ruthless. Martin Luther, because he, he was first very um, gentle toward the Jews. In the beginning of his writings, he said, they're closer to Christ, therefore I identify with them. And then he tried to evangelize them and they rejected him. And so he began to see them as the people of, of Satan, which indeed, right now, the Jews follow the synagogue of Satan. They are, they, they are not, Jews are not saved because they're Jews. We know that, right? Israel's not saved just because they're Israel. God has a plan for them, we believe. But right now, they are just as much in rebellion and rejection of God as anyone else in this world. So as Martin Luther saw that, he began to encourage his people to burn down their houses, to burn down their synagogues, to give them no quarter, to give them no safety. He says, if they're killed, it's not on my conscience. I sure don't care. Because they're people of the devil. John Calvin was the same way. If they die, it's not on my conscience. I don't care. It undergird the kind of anti-Semitism. And the anti-Semitism at the time was cultural and pervasive. It was everywhere. And would remain until World War II when God, through tremendously terrible events of the Holocaust, changed the, the worldwide perception of the Jews in order to allow them to have, the, have a state and fulfill prophecy and such. But what we find is that today, covenant the theology is coming back into vogue. 
Replacement theology is becoming a big thing again, and not just in liturgical circles. We see it some in Lutheranism, and we see it still in Catholicism uh, to, to some degree, but we also are now seeing it heavily in evangelical churches through Calvinistic teaching and in Baptist churches as well. So this is not a, this is not a denominational issue here. It spans these issues. But as we see covenant theology and replacement theology take root in our culture again, you are seeing more anti-Semitism. Once again, don't be surprised. It's a natural outworking of this ideology. In contrast to this theology and their rejection of the Jewish people, Paul tells us that God has allowed the nation not to be destroyed or not to be ruined or not to be, to be, to be uh, uh, cast into darkness, but rather to stumble for our sakes. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ if my kinsmen according to the flesh, he was a Jew, if my kinsmen would be saved. He says, who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. It's interesting. Romans 9, 10, 11 is the treatise of the Calvinist church. They take Romans 9, 10, 11 and they say, see God, the church is Israel. But notice right at the beginning of Paul's speaking here, he speaks of his brethren according to the flesh as Israelites. That sets the precedent for everything Paul is about to say in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He has defined his use of Israelites as being his kinsmen according to the flesh. Notice what he goes on to say in Romans 11. I'm skipping a lot here again. I told you I I cannot do full justice to this topic today. Romans 11, verses 1 through 5. He says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid... For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. You notice how he's using all of these physical ties? Ties to the, the physical national lineage of Israel? God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Woe ye not what the scriptures saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knees to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And we would not disagree with the covenant theologian on this. They say, of course there's a remnant. That's Israel. See? Israel. Israel is a remnant. That's, that's the part that's Israel. Well, that's fine until you get to Romans 11, verses 25 through 29, where Paul says this. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of the mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. Don't get lifted up with pride as if you're so special to God. That blindness in part has happened to Israel, that's the nation, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in to, to, to what? To the church. Not to Israel, to the church. Blindness is happening to Israel. If Israel is the church, how, how is the church being blinded so that the Gentiles can come in? That doesn't make sense. Blindness has happened to Israel, the the nation, so that the Gentiles can come into the church. God has allowed them to live in this deception that they have sought for themselves by 
sending Christ to the cross. They confirmed themselves in their deception. God has allowed them to live in that deception continually from that age to today for the purpose of allowing everyone else to get into the church, allowing the Gentile world to be evangelized. And so all Israel, he says, shall be saved. Not talking about the church here. Can't be talking about the church. He's just contrasted Israel with the Gentiles. All Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob, not using the covenant name of Israel, but the national name of Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sakes. They're enemies of the gospel, but yet they are still God's elect. Not unto salvation. Election has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with purpose. As touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. If God has made promises to Israel, which is exactly what Paul is saying here, God will not renege on those, and he cannot renege on those. The deliverer will turn away the godliness from Jacob. God has promised that they will be delivered. There's coming a generation where all Israel will accept him. This promise echoes what God told the nation of Israel in Isaiah 59, 20. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. So why have I spent so much time highlighting that God still has a purpose for Israel? Circumcision is not needed for salvation, and, and there's a difference between national Israel and the church. Why does all of this matter? Well, because infant baptism is a natural outworking of a theology that believes that the church has replaced Israel or that the church is a natural extension of Israel. Get this. Covenant theologian teaches this and infant baptism is a natural application of that teaching. Number three, infant baptism is a, re is a resulting error of this poor theological interpretation. Now again, I feel like I'm grossly simplifying this topic. There's so much more to say. Let's just keep moving. We live in a heavily Lutheran and Catholic area which teaches infant baptism and insists that infant baptism is essential to some degree or another to, the, to one's spiritual life. Now, depending upon you, who you talk to, there, there's different spectrums of this. Some will cite baptism, infant baptism as an important part of getting to heaven. Others will cite it as a, a Bible-based tradition. Some will say, without infant baptism, salvation is impossible. Some will say... When I, when I knock on doors and I ask people how they know they're going to heaven, I've had many times in this area, I've been baptized and I've gone to church and I've been confirmed. And they say that I'm going to heaven because of that. But that's not what the Bible says gets a person to heaven. The Bible says what gets a person to heaven is salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, accepting the free gift of, of Jesus Christ. And when a church believes that the church has essentially inherited all of the promises of Israel, that's where this idea comes from. In the days of Israel, a child would be circumcised. And he would be circumcised apart from his own will at eight days old in order to enter into the covenants of the nation. Later in life, having then heard the word of God, he would decide whether or not he wants to obey God's commands. He would either accept or reject the revelation of God. And if the church has replaced Israel... If God's expectations upon Israel have simply flowed into the church, then the church 
is not just a spiritual body, but it's a physical nation. And just as the physical nation of Israel had an induction ceremony to enter into its covenant blessings on the eighth day apart from a child's will, so too should the church, right? Do you, do, do you see their line of thinking? Can you see where it comes from? If the church is a nation just as Israel was a nation, and the church has effectively replaced that nation, and the church is now the covenant people that Israel once was, and Israel had this institution whereby they inducted young children into the promises and the graces of that national or that, that physical entity, then should not the church have some means by which they induct children apart from their will into this physical entity? Do you, do you see their line of thinking? But here's the problem. Circumcision can't be that right, can it? Because we've already seen that circumcision was rejected by the church. So they can't use circumcision again. So the parallel breaks down. And since they can't use circumcision, because a person could easily go to Acts 15 and say, don't do circumcision, you don't need circumcision to be a part of the church. They chose instead the right that is demonstrated in the New Testament for the church, baptism. To be the right through which young children were inducted into this physical entity called the church. By all accounts, if, if covenant theology was right, and if the, there was just this natural extension from Israel to the church, by all accounts, then the church should have been circumcising their children on the eighth day. That would have been consistent interpretation. And the only reason why, the only wrench thrown in that, in that whole system is the fact that Acts 15 makes it clear that circumcision is not necessary. So they use baptism instead. So they believe that the church has completely replaced Israel. There is a physical church which one must be connected to in order to receive the promises which God made to Israel. That there's coming a day when the church will receive the land, the seed, and the blessing, which means there needs to be a physical entity called the church that receives that, which is why Catholicism and Lutheranism and, and such have a hierarchical system and they have a huge body and, and they, they, they demand that big, that big physical System, Because that's the church. The church is the entity, not the individuals within it. We believe the individuals in this church make up the church. They believe the church is something of itself that individuals come into. That's, that's a big difference. The church, therefore, the institutional church is extremely important to them. If you're not connected to the institutional church, you're outside of the grace of God. Just like if a person was not circumcised into national Israel, they were outside of the national promises of God to the nation. The church is seen as the institution through which all God's blessings flow. Just as the Old Testament in the nation was the institution through which all God's blessings flow. And so the Catholics and the Lutherans, and, and there's even a Baptist, Baptist movement that does this. They're called Landmark Baptists. Believe that if you're not connected to what they de deem to be the exclusive representative group of Christ upon this earth conferred by that institution you have no part in Christ's blessing which is why in the Catholic Church the sacraments are so important because the sacraments connect you to the church and the church connects you to Christ the church is the middleman between you and Christ 
And just like the nation of Israel, it would be very important to parents that their children enter into the covenant blessings and promises of the institutionalized church. But since circumcision is a sign which has been done away with, baptism is the New Testament Christ-prescribed sign by which a person declares his union with Christ. They induct children into the institution by baptizing them as infants. Now again, that baptism is an ordinance and is expected by God as a step of obedience following salvation is something that we believe. Baptism is important to us. We're Baptists, right? It's important to us. But there's a big difference here between these two systems. I hope you're you're seeing that. Between what they believe baptism does and why they believe baptism matters. Just like a Jewish child would go through the rite of passage to become a man or a woman, so too then the liturgical denominations go through a, a confirmation at which point they are officially connected to the institution of the church. You're baptized into the church, then you go through confirmation, and then after confirmation, you are made a part of that church. You are fully inducted into manhood in the church in the same way that a a child at the age of 13 would go through a bar mitzvah in the Jewish culture to be brought into manhood in the nation of Israel and thus receive all of the blessings and the promises of manhood in Israel. You see the parallels? I mean, it's, 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 it's just taking Israel and making it the church. That's what it's doing. And so this model of infant circumcision and naming on the eighth day, and, and by the way, they gave him the name on the eighth day as well. That is passed out in some circles out of, out of popularity, but have you ever heard of christening? Something which was done whereby at the time of a child's infant baptism, he would also be christened and given his Christian name. Same thing. What's the problem, though? The problem is this. The church is not a physical institution. The church is a spiritual institution. The church is not an inheritor of physical blessings, but spiritual blessings. We don't join a church. You join a local body of believers if you choose to yoke with us in membership. But when you get saved, you, are, you become a part of the church. You're not added to an institution. You are added to the building. You're not joining an institution. You are the institution. The church are the people in these seats. The church is not this building or our bylaws or a hierarchy or a system. I don't hold any more sway in the church than you do simply because I'm a pastor. Now, I have been given authority over this local body by God and by your consent. According to 1 Peter, you... you can you lead, you follow me willingly, not by constraint, not for filthy lucre. But I have no more spiritual standing before God because I, I'm wearing this suit or I'm standing behind this pulpit or I'm called pastor. Because we are the church. Not so in the liturgical denominations. The church is not entered into a physical birth. We don't enter into the church by physical birth. We enter into the church by spiritual birth. Jesus taught that clearly in John 3 to Nicodemus. Ye must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again. You must have a spiritual birth. That second birth, that's the one that brings you into the church. Not a physical birth. And as the sign is intended to reflect entrance of, uh, into 
God's election. See, Israel entered into a physical nation by a physical sign, circumcision. We show our entrance into the spiritual entity of the church through a spiritual sign that is baptism. Baptism leaves no physical mark on us. It's a spiritual proclamation. Under the Mosaic system, a child would enter into the physical covenant through that physical sign, into the physical nation, circumcision. Receive physical blessings and physical cursings connected to them being a part of that physical nation. Under the new covenant, under salvation by grace through faith, a person enters into a spiritual covenant through a spiritual birth. They don't enter into a physical institution, but a spiritual institution, which is made up of all who have been born again in every age through spiritual birth. And as the church is a spiritual entity, the sign of one entrance into the church is not physical in nature, but spiritual in nature. Now, it's physical. We're taking physical steps as we get baptized, obviously. But there's nothing physically happening there. And as the church is a spiritual entity, the blessings are not physical in nature. God doesn't promise us health and wealth if we obey. They're spiritual in nature. So that brings us to our final point. What is baptism then? Baptism is a sign of entrance into God's covenant people by means of being born again. All throughout the New Testament, this is what we see. This is the common thread of baptism throughout the New Testament. It takes place after belief in Christ unto salvation. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 12. Bible says, But when they believed, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. When they believed, they were baptized. More important still, the most important, the most definitive example, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is headed back down to Ethiopia. Philip runs up to him. The man is reading a scroll of Isaiah. Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? The man says, how can I understand unless someone teaches me? So Philip expounds to him how the passage he was reading is teaching on Christ. Teaching of Christ. He was reading Isaiah 53. Prophecy of Christ. The man hears all of this tremendous uh, prophecy of Christ. And he says, verse, Acts 8.36, And when they went on their way, they came into certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Interesting, if you look that up in any other version of the Bible other than the King James or the New King James, you're going to find it dramatically altered. And altered in such a way that you could not get from it that you must believe in the name of Jesus Christ before being altered, before being baptized. They take out the, the whole concept of being, believing in the name of Jesus Christ from modern translations. It'll either be removed or it'll be bracketed and said, this doesn't belong here. It's not in the best manuscripts. Acts 18.8 as well. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed 
and were baptized. Baptism following belief. It's interesting. Adoniram Judson used to be um, a, a, what they called a New Light Calvinist. And he was into covenant theology, as were many in the American world at the time uh, in the 1800s. And covenant theology was just the thing. It's what they were. You got infant baptized. That's what you did. You, you uh, were baptized into the institutional church. And he was on his way as an American missionary, one of the first American missionaries into Asia. And as he was on his way there, he knew that one of the men that he was going to come into contact with, first of all, would be a man named William Carey. And William Carey was a great missionary. You can read about him. Tremendous, tremendous missionary. And William Carey was a Baptist. And Adoniram Judson was concerned about this because he knew that his doctrine of infant baptism was going to be questioned when he got to Asia. And so he spent his time on the boat, and it would, would, would have been a considerable journey to cross the Pacific, right? He spent his time on the boat studying the Word of God so that he could answer and have answers against William Carey when William Carey was ready to confront him about his belief in infant baptism. And as he studied, by the time he got to Asia, he had changed his perspective. He had realized that there was not one instance in the, in the Bible where infants were baptized. And in fact, the common thread of every baptism in the New Testament is that it was following belief unto salvation. And so he got off the boat, and one of the first things he did is have William Carey baptize him. And then he had to leave his mission board, because his mission board was a covenant theology mission board, and he had to become a Baptist missionary. And he became one of the first Baptist missionaries sent out of America. What does the Bible reveal baptism to be? Indeed, it is in a manner of speaking like circumcision in this way. It's a public profession of one's identification with God's covenant. Circumcision was a public profession of one's identification with the physical elements of the Abrahamic covenant as defined in the law of Moses. Baptism is a public profession of one's identification with the new covenant of salvation. And just as one must have been born and entered into the family of an Israelite in order to receive the covenant of circumcision, so too one must first be born into the family of God before he receives the ordinance of baptism to identify with God's covenant of grace. How can I identify with a covenant that I don't even know that I'm going to be a part of? Now, where does this leave us today? As I've mentioned, we live in an area that has a lot of this. Infant baptism is common. But as the church is not Israel, and as we believe that here at Legacy Baptist Church, as the baptism that we recognize is to be a public declaration of faith, let me put it this way. Infant baptism, and I'm saying this carefully, is theologically meaningless. And that's okay. As long as we understand this. Let me, let me explain. There are a lot of things that we do in churches that are theologically meaningless, but that's okay because they mean something to us. Right? There are people that treat infant baptism in many ways in the church. Some people treat infant baptism the same way they treat a baby dedication. They get it. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. They get that. But, you know, in evangelical circles, we don't do them at this church because your pastor is not... Maybe, I, maybe we need to. I'm just not into all those things. But we don't really do baby dedications here um, where pa parents get up and they hold their baby and pastor prays over them and they give them a little Bible that they can chew on. And 
that, you know, that happened. And that's fine. It's not a bad thing, right? That's a good thing. As a matter of fact, many parents want that. They love that. They love the idea that they stood up and they committed before God's people to, to raise their children as under the Lord. But we know that as the parents stand there and dedicate that baby, that does nothing for the baby, does it? It does nothing for the baby. It's about the parents. It's about the parents saying, I'm committed to do something for these kids, to raise them as unto the Lord. And I'm, I'm uh, placing myself before the accountability of the church in this manner. And that's a good thing. That's a fine thing. It's not necessary biblically, but it's fine. Now, if, if the people in this community, if you run across people and they see infant baptism in that way, that's their means by which, you know, they, they don't see it as doing anything for the child, but it was more or less for them. To, 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 I'm going to raise my children to, to love the Lord and I'm going to keep them in church and I'm going to teach them and this is accountability. Okay. More power to you. Give your baby a bath. It's fine. You know, that, that, that's fine. But it has no spiritual implication on that child's life. It's theologically meaningless. That's okay as long as we understand it. Infant baptism does not secure this child's salvation. It does not incur upon this child God's favor. It's spiritually meaningless to him. On the other hand, baptism following belief is meaningful. It is theologically meaningful. And we would believe it's very important to God. We saw the example of Acts 15, the church's expectation. Uh, we, 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 we see Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch. Every single person that got saved, we see that they got baptized afterwards. Our Lord said in Matthew 28, 18-20, as he commissioned his disciples to go, he said this, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The two teachings there are actually different words. Literally, Jesus is saying, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and then teaching them. Make disciples. Get them saved. Get them baptized. Get them discipled. Get them saved. Get them baptized. Teach them the word. Teach them how to reproduce. Teach them how to tell others. Teach them how to, how to reproduce themselves as a Christian. This is the church's commission. And baptism is a part of that. It's important to God. It's undoubtedly important to God. And so we at Legacy Baptist Church recognize two ordinances both of which Jesus taught. The Lord's table, which he said, this ye do in remembrance of me. As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show or demonstrate the Lord's death till he come. And we recognize baptism after salvation because that's what we see exampled in the scriptures. And today my goal has been threefold. We're almost done here. Thank you for your patience. Firstly, I hope I gave you perspective on where infant baptism came from why it's a tradition among these denominations who believe that the church is operating in replacement of Israel. Secondly, I hope I gave you an understanding of why we don't agree with this interpretation and the natural outworking of its theology. And thirdly, I just want to state this. We are Baptists by conviction. And around these parts, that's kind of almost a church death sentence. Knock on a door, I say, hi, I'm from a Baptist church, and most people shut off right there. 
we could take Baptist off of our sign and we could not even threaten our theology or our practice, it'd be fine. We could become a Bible church, we could just become legacy church, we could do that. We might even have people come through our doors that otherwise would not, simply because Baptist is offensive around here. But here's the thing. Baptism was very important to Jesus. It was important to the apostles. It was important to the early church. It's important in the Bible, and so it's important to us. Throughout history, if you look at the common thread of those who have been persecuted for their faith, there, there were, were, were others. And obviously, the Jews have been persecuted at various times and such. But if you look at the common thread of those who have been persecuted for their Christian faith, the common thread that links them all together is that they believed in baptism after salvation. The Anabaptists are the heritage of the Baptist Church in Europe. They were persecuted by the Catholics. They were persecuted by the Calvinists. They were persecuted by the Lutherans. They were persecuted by every group that believed in this top-down church system. They were persecuted well prior to the Reformation. They were persecuted prior to Lutheranism, prior to Calvinism. They were persecuted during the Dark Ages for, for baptism after salvation. And while we certainly need not define all that we are by one element of obedience, we dare not deny the distinctive especially in an area like ours which struggles so much with it and understanding it. Now, if you have been infant baptized, that's okay. Not a problem, as long as you realize that it meant nothing before God. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you've never followed Him in believer's baptism, you're still saved. You're going to heaven. That's, it's not a requirement for, for... Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. We see it nowhere in Scripture that baptism is a requirement for salvation. But it is a step of obedience which was taken, ought to be taken by the command of Christ in His Great Commission as a public acknowledgement of your faith in Christ. It is spiritually meaningful following salvation for Christ said it to be so. And if you are not baptized, then we believe that you're walking out of step with the biblical example that we find in the Scriptures recorded in the book of Acts and in the early church. And this is why we ask you not to partake in communion if you have not been baptized, because we believe you're walking out of step with the example of the Word of God. I would strongly urge you to consider being baptized if you have not, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you haven't, then we've talked about that today too. I urge you along those lines as well. I encourage you, however, if you've been saved but have not been baptized, to do so in obedience to the Lord's command as a public testimony of your faith in the finished work of Christ alone. Now, I know this has been a packed message. And you've been very good for it. I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's given you perspective. I hope it will give you answers for those that would question why we believe what we believe. But may I just go back to what we've said before. We're not here because we, we're not, we are not here as a church to look at everybody else in this community and say, we're right, you're wrong. This is not to be an area of pride. This is simply an area of truth. We stand on it not just to be different, not because we think we're better than others, but because this is what we believe the Bible says. And that's what we want here. That's what we, that's what we aim for here. That's what we strive for here. And by God's grace, that's what we do. May God help us as we are honest with the Word of God. to align ourselves with it.
regardless of preconceived notions and regardless of what others would say. Let's close in prayer.